transmitting high atop of Florida's mountainous community at 108 feet. This is Alpha Mike. You are listening to Radio Cop Podcast. Today's episode 152, Chin. As we continue our Wise Guys series, a little bit I'll give a little overview of where we are on this series. Numbers are pretty good for the Wise Guys series, but people like to hear it and I'd like to deliver it, that's for sure. I I want to take the opportunity. I know you heard uh, episode 151 in Bernie. No, not that one. And in that episode, I had actually recorded prior to the death of my dad that occurred on August 5th. But somehow, don't know how it happened, but I could not find the audio for that. And I'm pretty sure I I um, had saved it, but, but regardless of the fact, I couldn't find it. So I had to record it after, and I didn't want to deviate too much from the show notes uh, because it's kind of all timed and it was already pre-done. So I didn't um, make any mention of it. But I want to take the opportunity and do that now. My dad had um, was an ongoing battle with cancer. Uh, he did not die of cancer. He died of something else. And um, dad had esophagus cancer. He went through radiation. He went through chemo. He was um, tough as nails in that respect and in that department. And... Uh, Dad's tumor was removed, which consisted of removal of his entire esophagus and part of his stomach. Then the stomach is turned into the new esophagus. And he was doing very well with that. He had lost a tremendous amount of weight, which really did him uh, more good than than harm. But uh, Dad started developing uh, water in the lungs. And there's a you know real struggle with that, and I'm going to be having an episode in the future to talk about death and the separation of it, of um, of family, and the coronavirus. This for me has been one of the most impersonal situations that I would not wish this on my worst enemy. But it's a fact of life. I've, I've read about it. I've seen it on television. Families being separated from loved ones that died in hospitals. But now I've experienced it. And um, I want to share that experience because I believe it, it needs to be shared. I want to also take the opportunity and thank my two lovely sisters for an outstanding job in uh, getting done the things that we needed to get done. I was a complete mess right after I was notified. I was the point of contact between doctors, my dad, and my family. And as the point of contact, I had to deal with the bad, the good, and the ugly. I was the first notified. And um, there was a slight delay on everybody else finding out. Not, not very long, because I had no strength. 
and they had to find that strength. So I want to thank them uh, because they really did an outstanding job, and we all kind of supported each other, and that's that's what counts. And so more on that to come. You know, God is, of course, always good. And in during this, I'll, I'll finish with this, during this episode of coronavirus, having a loved one elderly going to the hospital, basically uh, this last event, he went via fire rescue to one hospital and had to be transferred to uh, the hospital that was attending him. And they did that almost on the same day. But some other times, it was a drop-off to the emergency room, a wave goodbye, as you would see him walk into the emergency room by himself. And it is the most impersonal things that you'll ever experience. And I'm not the only family that it's experienced. We are not. But uh, others are are experiencing, and we know that we've got to share that. But my point is that after we were notified of his death, we had to make arrangements. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the shell game and and the mafia that exists in trying to uh, bury a loved one and how we were told repeatedly you can't and you won't, and that's not going to happen. But when you serve the God, the real God, the I am, the impossible becomes possible. And with that being said, it's time for the Word of the Week. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. 1 Peter 4.16 And as a reminder, you can hear more on this one verse, 15 minutes or less, the same day that this episode airs. And there you can go to Raider Cop Nation, our website, and look up the sections that say, Test Everything. And there you will hear this and others if you want 15 minutes or less of what this verse means for your life. All right, a little overview on where we are right now with the Wise Guys series. We started off with uh, Vito Genovese. And, uh, you know, we talked, We our date of history will always be 1931. That's when the commission was created prior to 1931 the mafia was all over the place but uh, LCN La Cosa Nostra creation uh, of 1931 by Luciano divided the five families in New York, Chicago uh, Philadelphia uh, Buffalo all these areas and of course, they started shrinking as time went on, but the five families in New York still exist. And we picked on Luciano's family, which his underboss, right, Charlie Lucky Luciano, was 
Vito Genovese, and we talked about Vito, and uh, he basically had the position of power since 31 when they reformed everything, and then he goes to Italy and to avoid a murder rap, comes back and, you know, wants what he believes is his, which is to become boss. And through uh, a bunch of events that happened, we, we talked about the Prime Minister, Frank Costello. He brings now the La Costa Nostra into the world of politics, big corporate entities, money flows. Frank Costello was very much part of the leadership from the beginning, from 1931, but by 1936-37, he's thrusted in the leadership position that Vito Genovese believed should have been his. We know that in 1957, Vito, wanting that position back, sends a shooter to shoot Frank Costello and take him out in his apartment building as he exited a taxi and entered the lobby. And then we went from that era where Frank Costello leaves and retires and Vito takes over, but then Vito ends up going to prison for a short, well, not a short stint because he dies in prison, but shortly after being uh, crowned boss of bosses in 1957, uh, Vito wanted an official commission meeting with all the families, and that's Appalachia. That was a catastrophe. And there he wanted to remove the name of Luciano family and call it the Genovese family, and he wanted to be crowned and all this. Well, there was a lot of bosses that thought it was best for Vito, which was a pure thug, to do some time and for dealing in drugs, which was totally fabricated. Even the witness against Vito Genovese, a guy by the name of Nelson Cantalopos, uh, later admits that he, they had paid him to, to do that. So Vito ends up uh, dying in 69, basically went to prison for about a decade, and it was hard to run the Genovese family, or the what was the Luciano family, from prison. So he created a commission, and then we talked about the final boss was uh, Phil, uh, Phil Squint, okay, and um, masterminded the uh, now you see me, now you don't. Nobody knows who in the world is in charge of this family. And now we're going to talk about the guy that comes in right after Phil Squint. He was the shooter in that that lobby, too. And uh, we will talk about him because he brings this family into a, a different era and a different mindset. And we'll talk about the different types of mafia leaders and which one he represented. So, time to start up the clowns, because the Wise Guys series is here, episode 152, Chin.
He was born March 29th, 1928, in New York City. Vincenzo Ocenzo Gigante. His mother would take the Vincent, it later turned into the English version, but would say it in uh, Italian dialect, Cincenzo. And the kids in the neighborhood quickly gathered up the nickname Chin. He's uh, was his parents were immigrants from Naples, and it's important we're going to keep that in our back of our memory banks when we deal with these wise guys series, because there is a connection of mobsters in New York that are of Napolitan descent, how they kind of bonded together during and probably even still today compared to the Sicilians. And uh, this is uh, an, another individual that is very much noted in that connection. Uh, his mother was named Yolanda. She was a seamstress. And uh, Dad Salvatore was a watchmaker. They had four brothers, Vincent the Chin had. Mario, Pasquale, Ralph, and Louis, which was a Catholic priest. He drops out of high school and becomes a professional boxer, late heavyweight. Now, you know, the, back then the neighborhoods were, were tough. You know, they were not as um, soft as they are today as people just play uh, games on their... Uh, what do you call that thing? The Microsoft thing, whatever it's called. Back then, you had to play out in the street, and you had to box, and you had to fight, and you had to survive, and that's what he was doing. Uh, Vincent the Chin was uh, noted as fighting 25 matches in his boxing career. Uh, of those, uh, he only had four losses. Some people have said some of them were fixed. They might have been, but nevertheless, he still got in the ring. He had a total count of rounds of 117 in his career. Word were definitely spread around the Greenwich Village area of New York City that he was a knock-around kid from the neighborhood that was good with his hands. And a lot of people took notice, and one of those individuals was Vito Genovese. Vito Genovese would become his mentor. In Vincent De Chin's criminal career now, he's arrested seven times between the from the ages of 17 to 25. And he would eventually become Vito Genovese's driver and I guess you want to say bodyguard. 1957, Vito gives Chin an assignment. <clears throat> and the assignment was simple. Take this revolver, go inside the lobby of this apartment building. Frank Costello is going to exit a vehicle 
walk inside the lobby and put a bullet in Frank's head. Easy enough, but it didn't work out very well for Chin. You know, he was in the lobby. He waited. He pulled out the gun. But for some reason, he called out his name and said, Frank. And Frank turned around. This is for you. And as he was turning his head, the bullet grazed him in the skull. Didn't kill him. A lot of blood. And Chin was out of there. Chin being a heavy set fellow, the doorman said he was large in frame. So it was very difficult for Chin to hide in the lobby. Frank Costello, after he got shot, he said, I've had enough of this nonsense. Frank Costello was a part of the criminal underworld way before 1931 and close to Lucky Luciano. He had been part of the administration of the Luciano family as between the second and third in command. And uh, in 1936, when Lucky Luciano got put away in prison and then later deported, Costello took a leadership role. So pretty much you could say from inception to 1957, Frank has been somewhat the prime minister of a leader of La Costa Nostra. Frank brought the family to a different level. But Frank was not a thug and a gangster like Vito Genovese was. Genovese was a gangster. Costello was the prime minister, but he wasn't a gangster. He was an earner. And when you are a gangster and an earner, you're dangerous. So Vito muscled his way into that position. Frank had made so much money, it wasn't worth it. Plus, it was not going to be an easy battle fighting it out against Vito Genovese. So Frank retires. But prior to retiring... He's uh, got to have the hearing of who shot him. And when he took the witness stand, Frank Costello, they asked him, do you see the man in this courtroom that shot you? And he looked around and he said, no. And pretty much that was the end of the case. The case was crumbling. As Frank exited the courtroom, everybody could hear Chin tell Frank, hey, thanks, Frank thanking him for dummying up. Frank would uh, go on to live in Florida for a little bit, and I believe in 1972, he ends up passing. But Chin, after that event, um, he shows his loyalty. He didn't snitch on anybody. He did a little bit of time, and he actually did time with Vito Genovese and that those years that he spent behind bars with Vito would do him a lot of good back in the 60s and sometime during the 60s Vito makes him a capo, a captain in the Genovese family he keeps 
chin basically on the sidelines learning. And Chin has a lot of good teachers around him. Squint himself would make sure of that. There was no second guessing. A lot of people talk about how the Genovese family is very good in hiding who the leaders are. And it's confused law enforcement for a long, long time. In fact, even today, there's an era like from 1931 to like 1945 or something like that. They have no idea who the underboss or the consulary is. They only got what Joe Valachi told them, a guy by the name of Sandino. Nobody knows who he is. So he's a, like a legendary figure. So this family, the Genovese family, has been very, very good in disguising who the real leader is. Well, Vincent was no uh, different. At one point, uh, Squint goes up to like 1980, 81, and the mantle is turned over the chin. They had a system where they had a street boss, and in that, in this case, it would be uh, Fat Tony Solano, which basically masqueraded as the leader. But the real leader now had transferred over to Chin. Now, remember, we spoke about earners and gangsters. And in this case, Vito was, a, was of course, a, a, a gangster. Frank was, a, was more of, a, of an earner and a politician at that. And... Phil Squint was an, was another earner. And, and here comes Chin now. And we go into the era of gangsterism again. He was a gangster. But he knew the rules. He was mentored very well. And there was no exclusions under his leadership. Many people and many other Families in La Costa Nostra feared Chin. Chin had given an edict. Nobody would mention his name. They would point to their chin in referring to him. This was to avoid any bugging device picking up mobsters talking about the chin. Chin gained a lot of power through his relationship with Vito Genovese, no doubt. And he learned under ideal circumstances. They were in prison together. In 1959, Vito ends up in jail. And in uh, pretty much in 1980, the chin starts grabbing the helm from from uh, Phil Squint. Now, during the era of the 50s, the 40s and the 50s, and partly the 60s, the Mafia lived a very rich life with little to no law enforcement activities. 
But during the Chins era, it was going to be a lot more difficult, a lot more sophisticated surveillance and so forth, and it would make it very, very difficult to be the leader. So Chin didn't think twice about it. He said, we're going to continue our little masquerade of who's the boss around here because I have no intention to go to prison. And... In 1959, Chin had several convictions already, some for drugs, racketeering, obstruction. He started piling them on. Now, the drug charges, some of them uh, were just baloney. Uh, the feds wanted to paint a picture. Some people say, you know, there were drug dealers and all. Look, all these mob families dealt in drugs in the 40s. And early 50s like nothing because there was no edict by the commission not to. That came later under penalty of death. Then everybody started dumbing up after that. In 2011, uh, Vincent de Chin uh, basically buys a waterfront property in New Jersey uh, for about $2 million. And uh, he lives in Jersey too. I guess he, he felt comfortable out there. Uh, tries to bribe, well, there was the alleged bribery of some police officers and so forth. So, Chin is doing everything to keep out of New York City. Low profile, but he's a thug. It's not that easy. A lot of other families did not know that he was the actual boss. They knew he was a capo. You know, the family might have had 20 couples back then. It was just one of 20. But they didn't, they didn't think he's not running nothing. You know, Fat Tony's in charge. And uh, that was, of course, part of the great corruption and how they did things. The Genovese family in New Jersey controlled the, the Longshoremen's Association in uh, New Jersey and Miami. And that brought a lot of... Uh, political clout. It brought a lot of money into the family as well. And Chin was all over that. If Today it's a lot easier to connect the dots. So let's say you got the capo. Well, he, he, let's say he's earning like all the other ones. That's no big deal. If you're running a family, you're into some of the lucrative stuff. You know, the big ticket items like this one I read with the waterfront. So Chin had his, his hand in the waterfront already, but the feds couldn't figure out that he, he was the boss. They, you know, he's a capo. You know, he's, he's, he's been uh, Vito Genovese's uh, chauffeur. That's what they were assuming. Chin goes around New York City, the Greenwich Village area, dressed up in a robe and given the assumption that he's crazy. In actuality, people that knew him would say that he was very astute. It was all an act, but he had done that right after his a case with Frank Costello. He he said, I, I think it's better to play crazy. 
And so he studied that, and, and that's what he did. He walked around in a robe and slippers and mumbling to himself and wouldn't shave for a couple of days. And uh, the FBI would follow him around, and he dodged them and have meetings with mobsters and put on his slippers again and, and pajamas and wander around Greenwich Village all over again. This went on for years. So... In any event, it worked because they could never really... First, there was no informants. That would take years before the fish showed up. But most of, of what the FBI knew, they said, there's no way this guy with this act, whatever he's doing, is the boss. That was the furthest of in their assessment. They actually believe it was Frank, uh, Fat, Fat Tony Salerno, because Fat Tony Salerno played very well the boss. He was large and in charge, and that's what they were supposed to do, fool everybody. Eventually, after the Great Commission, uh, the Commission case in 1985, Fat Tony's indicted and receives 100 years as the boss of the Genovese family. The Justice Department has to basically admit that they knew that he would could not be the boss, but they weren't going to, the court system wasn't going to overturn it. And the FBI and the Justice Department went after the chin in the uh, 90s. Early 90s, it started, but, you know, not until the mid-90s. And the chin would eventually get uh, jammed up on a couple of cases, and he couldn't get out of it. The feds wanted him to testify and to sign um, a document that he was masquerading as a crazy person all these years, of that they would indict his son so Chin signed the paperwork at the end Chin ends up like his mentor in prison trying to run a family he played a crazy mafioso for most of his life he was a thug but he was a generous one because one of the things he would do large amounts of money are pouring all the way to the top, finding their last frontier in his pocket. But sometimes he wouldn't even take the money. He'd divert the money to the troops. He was on recording basically saying, how can you have so much money? At one point, you got to share it. Of course, Paul Castellano of the Gambino family was widely considered by other mobsters, even from his own family, the Gambino family, for being extremely greedy. So Chin didn't want to get caught up in that. He shared. He did his bathroom robe thing. This is a man that was born in Greenwich Village and basically dies there. So the only place he lived, about four square blocks. That was it. That's all this man knew. 
Yeah, he had moved to New Jersey and he lived in the big house. I was just a hide from the cops. But in essence, he spent his entire life on four four blocks. And that's all he knew. So it was about the power. It wasn't about the money with him. And he continued to run the family very effectively up until a guy by the name of Fisk Carofalo came out. He was a soldier in the Genovese family assigned to Fat Tony Solarno. He starts to squeal and, and say that Chin was, uh, you know, doing an act and that Chin was um, basically the guy in charge. Although the FBI had several uh, tapes of Fat Tony talking in the social social club, they were going through a list, him and uh, Tony Ducks Corallo from the Lucchese family, they were going through a list of new inductees into La Costa Nostra. And Fat Tony was complaining about, I don't know anybody in this freaking list. So they were going back and forth, and Fat Tony basically says, what do you want from me? Let, let the boss approve it. So he's referring to somebody else and not him. So that was one of the first indicators that the FBI knew that there was a possibility that um, he was not in charge. And they stifled themselves and basically didn't say anything during the commission case in 86 because they wanted to get a conviction. You know, that's how underhanded the... The mob works. Chin eventually dies December 1905 in prison at the age of 77. And he left a very powerful family in place. The Luciano family that turned into the Genovese family in 57 was one of the largest. It's one of the premier La Costa Nostra families in America. It's the creme of the creme. And Vincent the Chin, he ran a tight ship. There's no secret he hated uh, Gotti for being flamboyant. And there was a little bit of a pissing match there <clears throat> but at the end Gotti they wanted to kill Gotti because they said that when he shot and killed well he didn't shoot but he was part of the team that killed Paul Castellano the boss of the Gambino family all the captains vote John Gotti in to become the new boss that that hit was not a commission-sanctioned hit. Only problem was, neither was that date in 1957 when Vito Genovese told the Chin, you're going to take this gun, you're going to go to this address, you're going to hide in the lobby, Frank's going to come through the lobby door, exiting car and you're going to put one in the, right in his head 
That wasn't sanctioned either. That was another wink and a nod. And we soon we're going to have a Wise Guy series episode about the Silver Fox. And we'll, ex- we'll explain more as that day comes of how all these sanctioned, unsanctioned hits were occurring because somebody that was on the commission was jockeying for position. Vito Genovese was his mentor, Chin Gigante. Chin learned a lot by Vito and what Vito had taught him. And Chin knew the rules. He knew them very well. He knew what he was in control of as a family. He knew the power that he had inherited, and he wore it very well. There are some that don't wear power very well. He did. He was feared. And how we how we know that is because nobody would mention his name. They'd point to their chins to indicate they were talking about him. Because he was, at the end of the day, a thug, a gangster, and he was in charge. He had the respect of many of his men. He helped out many other people and other families, too. He was very instrumental in the Gallo Brothers during the Colombo War when the Gallo faction needed a new home, he let them transfer into the Genovese family, which was Kid Blast Gallo, Joey Gallo's brother, little brother, and um, Frank Punchy. And they uh, left the Gallo crew, the Colombo family, went over to the Genovese family, and Vincent the Chin was very instrumental on that. Vincent the Chin at one point even uh, told Michael Francesi if uh, he had problems with his boss, which was Carmine Persico, if he wanted to come over to the Genovese family, which he, he, he didn't do, but he was offered. So Chin was very much aware of the power he had on the commission and that his power had to be used for peace and, of course, fear. He used uh, a lot of diplomacy, but sometimes diplomacy didn't go well, and you can ask members of the Philadelphia family because um, Chin didn't agree with... uh, some of the things that they were doing down there in trying to gain the leadership positions and get rid of Bruno, uh, he demonstrated that power by killing those people. So Vincent de Chin Gigante was a powerful and feared mafia leader. He led the family from... 1980 to probably 
05. That's a long time. Although there was a stretch of that in prison. And prison is always very difficult to maneuver. Today there's a, someone else in charge. No doubt that they were handpicked. There is no, oh, like some other families, okay, there's nobody around, you're it. The Genovese family mentors and pretty much masquerades and hides their leaders very effectively. And in this case, Chin instituted, uh, he wasn't the one that started it. It would. It actually started under Phil Squint, but Vito lived by it because um, it benefited Vito in prison, hiding who the real powers were, and it definitely helped uh, Chin when that time came. So, well-respected, um, but a lot of people that had contact with him, that was not many people there. Many mob members and other families wanted to meet on important mafia business, and uh, Chin didn't want to see, didn't want to see, and that was the end of it. You're going to have to see somebody else. There's a time, there's a story that Paul Castellano calls a meeting of the commission over uh, construction rackets. So everybody attends, including Chin. The following week, they're calling another commission uh, meeting. So, you know, you got to go through a lot of painstaking secrecy to get these meetings going. And it's Paul again about the, the construction business. And... Chin is outraged, and he goes, "Effing Paul, this is the second meeting about this construction crap. Don't we got captains that can do this? In other words, what the hell am I doing here trying to figure out the price of a screw? That's who he was. He was a thug. He wasn't a businessman. He was a thug. He was a gangster. And those are the most dangerous. Now, many of them don't have both uh, components, which is gangster and earner. But soon we're going to be talking about one of those that they're coming up in September, I believe. Not going to tell you because then I, I would, uh, you know, let the cat out of the bag. Okay, the song of the week, Donna, Donna by Richie Valens and Los Lobos. That's part of the doo-wop series. And uh, what's up next? 153, the legendary weapon of choice of law enforcement agencies in America, the Glock, episode 153. Hate no one, love everybody, understand that our time here is short and the decisions that we make on this planet Earth are important. They're so important that we will either, at the end of our time, have a heavenly experience or a very hellish, frightening experience. You be the judge when it's time to decide. As always, continue to pray for yourself because without you in the game, we have nothing. 
continue to pray for your family, your community, and the law enforcement agency that serves you. And most importantly, continue to pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, signing out.